Sorry to, sorry to everybody on the stream that missed all of my little preamble there. In the UK, each of us, on average, each day, is exposed to 5,000 adverts. That is 5,000 opportunities each day to hear uh, each advert would broadly be categorized into wanting to provoke one of two emotional responses. I want and I fear. And each time we are exposed to one of these adverts is an opportunity for us to hear the message and perhaps even start to believe that I do not have enough. And that maybe unless I get more and more and more, I will never be happy or maybe I'll never be safe. But the premise of today's message is very, very simple. What if God has actually and will actually provide for every single one of your needs? And what if, what if you knew it? What if you knew, really knew, God is going to provide for everything I could ever need? I'm provided for. I've got everything I could ever want, and I will have everything I could ever need. As we, as Martin said, continue our Ruth series today, we're continuing in chapter three. I want to share a message that I'm calling More Than Enough. And I don't know what the advert situation was in Bethlehem in 1300 BC. I don't know whether Naomi, one of the central characters in it, was bombarded on a daily basis with, you must buy this iPad, and don't these chicken nuggets look nice, and don't you think you need some health insurance? But we know from what we've seen of her so far, she struggles with this very concept of really believing, I know God's going to come through for me. But today, we are going to see Naomi transformed almost before our very eyes as she starts to get hold of it, starts to realize, oh, maybe, just maybe God is going to provide. And we're going to look at exactly what it is that brings this about, brings this change about in Naomi and how we too can follow in her footsteps and start to be sure God is going to provide for me. And we're following on from uh, the peculiar incident that we looked at last week that, uh, of Boaz and Ruth in the nighttime on the threshing room floor. And I would definitely recommend to you, uh, check out last week's if you missed it. Rianne did a superb job of navigating our way through the slightly strange narrative and events that we found there and bringing life and beauty out of what are a very complex set of circumstances for us to try and understand. But just to bring you up to speed, if you, if you haven't tracked along so far, or you missed last week, Naomi and Ruth that we're going to see today, they are widows in Bethlehem. And Naomi is Ruth's mother-in-law. And being widows in Bethlehem meant that you are facing up to vulnerability. You're facing the prospect of no future, no family. And you are potentially going to be the forgotten people. These were the people that would fall through the cracks in that kind of society. Maybe you're going to miss out completely. And for them, they had identified, we have one source of hope. This man, Boaz. And without going into all of it, if they realized that if Boaz would agree to marry Ruth, maybe both of them will be okay. 
And so Ruth goes to the threshing room floor after Naomi plots how it could all work out. And Ruth goes, they have a, this interaction that we looked at last week, and Boaz agrees to marry Ruth. And there's a little sticking point of this other kinsman that might get in the way. We'll look at that next week. Robin will guide us through that. But in principle, Boaz agrees to this proposal of marriage. He says yes. And things are starting to change for these two widows. So we're going to pick it up in Ruth chapter 3, verse 14. She lay at his feast. So this is Ruth lay at his feet, Boaz's feet, until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, bring the garment you're wearing and hold it out. So she held it out and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? She told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me. For he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. She replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. For the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. Boaz here begins by giving Ruth a gift. And here we think, ah, yes, this fits. The couple have just got engaged, and here we have man giving the woman a gift, a big gift. And after all the confusing complexity weirdness of last week, we think, right, we're back on sure footing here. And we're thinking, okay, well, what type of ring has Boaz got for Ruth? Is it, you know, traditional? Is it, is it nice and, is it modern? Has he gone for gold, platinum? Has he gone diamond? Boaz takes things in a slightly different direction when it comes to the generous gift that he gives. Six measures of barley. What every woman wants. Grain. That's exactly what happens. Verse 15, he says, hey, come over here, Ruth. Open up your shawl. And he just starts loading it up with barley grain. Six measures of the stuff which I'm putting a bit of emphasis on it. You're like, I have literally no idea how much six measures is. Over 40 kilograms of grain he puts in her shawl. 40 kilograms. Now, of course, if in our culture a man proposed to a woman and there was, uh, there was an engagement going on and the man gave 40 kilograms worth of carbohydrates to his bride-to-be, probably there would be some kind of pastoral conversation going on. But here we are in a very different culture, a very different time. And of course, what the author is wanting us to see is just the extravagant, abundant, over-the-top generosity of Boaz. 40 kilograms of grain. Back in chapter 2, you might remember there was the the incident or the, the episode where Ruth was gleaning in Boaz's field and Boaz made sure that Ruth ended up with an abundant amount of grain. Here, 
just a chapter on is an even bigger gift from Boaz. And the author wants us to see that this is a greater gift. There's a little clue in there. Back in chapter 2, when that previous gift was arranged, after Ruth has gleaned, we see that she is able, it says, that she picks up the gift and takes it into the city. But here in verse 15, you might have picked up on it, this time the gift is so heavy, she can't even pick it up herself. So verse 15, it says that Boaz had to put it on her. He loads it up with so much, she can't even pick it up. It's 40 kilograms of grain. He just lifts onto his new fiance's shoulders and says, off you go into the city. I mean, to us, a slightly comical arrangement, but again, just the overwhelming generosity of Boaz. And not only more, but this time, this giving is pure gift. See, unlike that gleaning episode in chapter 2, none of this is written in the law of God. There is no obligation for Boaz to have to do this. There is no subclause in Deuteronomy that says, oh, by the way, if you're on the threshing room floor and a woman comes in and it's midnight and, you know, she's quite attractive and she smells pretty good, if she comes to you and uncovers your feet, sorry, buddy, you're out of luck. You've got to give. And you've got to give big. It's just not there. Boaz does not have to do this. No compulsion whatsoever. He's already done the good thing. He's already been the righteous man. And yet still he gives. And of course, Boaz has form for this. Even in that chapter two gleaning moment, you might remember, he said to his people, I'll pull out some of the grain and put it on the floor so that Ruth will pick up way more than she otherwise would have. And we think, Boaz, you don't have to do that. But this is just unobligated, from the heart, doesn't have to do it, generosity just gives. And as he gives, God moves. I think it's so important that as we go through this series quite quickly, going through the the whole book, that we pick up this theme of Boaz's generosity moving the story along. If you look at the whole picture, so often the, the, the narrative moves along because of Boaz's giving that he doesn't have to do. Just one man's decision. I'm going to give. God moves in the story of Ruth. He moves in the story of Naomi. He draws this family together. But it's not just about this family. Because we'll see in a couple of weeks that through Boaz's generosity moving this story along, God starts to impact and move in sovereign ways. And how this story will be a catalyst and move the whole story of his redemption of creation along just another step. We have seen this Ruth. It's not a story of Red Sea parting. It's not a story perhaps of glory clouds of God descending down. But it is a story of God being present and God working in the lives of ordinary people to move their stories along, and move his story along. And this is how he does it. Just in this moment, through one man's faithful, 
generosity, one man's faithful giving, and his sovereign salvation plan for the whole of history advances. I think often we can think, oh, I, re- I really want my life to, to matter. I really want God to use me and for me to have a place in his plans. I want to have an impact. Or if that's you, give. You might think, oh, Duncan, I haven't really felt God speaking to me about that. You know, I'm not quite sure if that would be his will for my life. You know, I'm sort of waiting for a sign before I start giving. Boaz didn't have a sign. He just gave. He gave generously. And look how God used him and look how God moved through his gift. Whether it's generosity with our money or, or generosity with our time or generosity with our gifting and our talents and what we're able to do or hospitality, opening up our home, having some people we don't know so well over for dinner, whether it's generosity and looking after somebody else's kids, not a hint by the way, whatever it looks like, God works through generosity. He builds his kingdom upon us giving. And he advances his story through people who are just willing to abundantly bless other people. And that's exactly what we see here. This gift has a significant impact on Naomi's story. Ruth arrives to Naomi and Naomi says to her, Oh, hi Ruth. How did you fare, my daughter? Which is an easy winner for the most redundant question in the whole of Ruth. Like, imagine Ruth like sweating, doubled over, like, panting. How did you fare? It's like, hello, can you see what I have been loaded up with? Does this look like a failed trip? And as Ruth then unburdens herself, stroke totally collapses on the floor, she then after the contents of her shawl just spill out all over the living room floor and she composes herself, then excitedly tells Naomi all that has happened. And then something happens. In seemingly just a moment, the whole demeanor of Naomi seems to change. Her whole posture is different. It seems like there's some conversation between Naomi and Ruth that goes on between verses 17 and 18. Because Naomi seems to respond to something that doesn't seem to be there in the text. So we kind of, we don't know, but maybe Ruth starts to get agitated. Because the plan that they've got and what seems to be happening looks so good. But it's not quite a sealed deal yet. And so I wonder if she, like, the, the prospect of it is so exciting and so, like, yes. But then I wonder if she just, like, the excitement that she had just starts to be replaced by the grip of fear. What if, what if this doesn't happen? What if Boaz can't marry us? What, what, what happens then? And I wonder if then she starts to think, Naomi, look, we have to do something. You know when you're like that, when you start to get anxious, it's like, I've got to act in some way. I wonder if she's just starting to say, look, Naomi, we need to get out there. Maybe we need to go and just check that Boaz really is keeping up his end of the deal. Or maybe we need to go and find somebody else who will go and approach the, the other kinsman and chat with him and see if we can work out some kind of deal. We don't know. We're speculating but maybe something like that going on. 
it's actually not too important. What is most significant is Naomi's response in verse 18. She replied, wait, my daughter, until you learn how the matter turns out. The man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. This is a different woman to the one that we've seen so far. A different Naomi to the one that we've seen throughout the book thus far. In all of Ruth's uh, kind of supposed agitation, anxiety, and uncertainty, Naomi just says, wait. Just wait. In the message, it has quite like this. Just sit back and relax. Or the King James Version, my favorite, sit still. Ruth, sit still. Naomi is relaxed. She's at ease. There is still so much up in the air. Still so much of this situation that could go wrong. So much uncertainty. And to wait, sit still, sit back and relax in uncertainty is not Naomi's thing. Waiting in uncertainty is exactly what she didn't do the very moment we met her, chapter 1, verse 1. As she's faced with the uncertainty of the famine, she takes matters into her own hands. She leaves the promised land. She goes off to Moab. And actually, if we track through the whole story, with Naomi, there's certainly not a posture of waiting. Actually, there's kind of an element of her wanting to control in most situations that she finds herself in. From going to Moab to then saying to Ruth and Orpah, no, you can't come with me. She says, go to them. To then in chapter two, as she's instructing Ruth. And then chapter three, most clearly, as we saw last week, where she, in the language of the author of Ruth, she commands Ruth exactly what it is that she has to do in her interaction with Boaz, down to the minutest of details, telling her exactly what she wants to do. We, we get this picture of a woman who feels she can't trust anyone else to provide for her. She has to do it. That if she can't see exactly how her needs are going to be met, she has to take control. She has to purposefully engineer every movement that is going on. She has to micromanage every single detail of every single interaction to make sure she won't be left lacking. She kind of trusts God, but actually her behavior and the way she's living shows she really believes that at some point God is going to let her down again. And then here, as this gift just comes flooding into her life. She's changed. And the, in our passage, all of the attention of the author is on this abundant gift that she has received. The author sums up the whole of the drama of the threshing room floor, all of the complexity that we looked at last week, and just in verse 6 by saying, she told her all that, the, that he had done for her. That's it. That's all we get. But the dialogue that then gets focused attention is the gift 
that Naomi has received. Remember, we are to pay attention to repeated details that come up in the text. And we, we read of the six measures that she receives in verse 15. And then we read again in, in verse 17 of the, the six measures of barley that he has given to me. And the tone of that is very much, look at these six measures that he has given to me. One of the scholars of the passage literally just goes ahead and translates it as a huge load of barley that she has just received. We are talking grain everywhere, all over the living room floor, getting into the cracks of the floorboard. I mean, this is before the days of hoovers. It is going to be a nightmare to clean up this gift that has come to her. But the author is not just drawing our attention here to the sheer size of the gift, but through the language that he uses in verse 17, He wants us to see that this gift for Naomi, for her, is a profound moment. Verse 17. These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, you must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. Boaz explicitly says, this is a gift so that Naomi will not be left empty. Now, from the very beginning, we have seen Naomi as an empty woman. She lost all she had in Moab, that opening episode. No food, no family, no future, vulnerable, alone. And as she returned to Bethlehem, she described herself in chapter 1 as an empty woman. As she, she accused God before other people and said, the Lord has brought me back empty, was her cry. An empty woman is who she is. She sees emptiness as her very identity, one who has been emptied out. And her understanding of God as she cries that out, the Lord has brought me back empty, is is a God who empties his people, a God who holds back from his people, a God who leads his people into poverty. And as she says it in chapter 1, a stark accusation against God, the author of Ruth just leaves it. No narrator comments, no person in there challenging her, questioning, is that the right view of God? Just leaves it hanging there. God has emptied me out. And we as the reader are left questioning, is is this who God is? is? Is God one who, for his people, he just abandons them? And maybe that is some of your question today. You would think, Is God one who leaves us in our distress? Is an emptying from God the sort of thing that we can expect? Is he good to some, but then others, he just like casts them aside and poverty and and nothingness is their lot? Well, we as the readers, we've had to wait. But here, emphatically, beautifully, God answers these questions that, or the author answers these questions that he had left hanging, unaddressed in the air. Just picture Naomi in her living room. This widow who had feared for so many months, 
maybe even years, that she would never have enough. That she feared that poverty would be her lot. That she would just have to cherish every precious little bit of grain that she could get her hands on. Just maybe even the, the bits that are in her, her floorboards now would be kind of the, the most she thought she could ever hope for. This being how she saw her life going. And now she finds herself absolutely surrounded by grain. Just everywhere she looks, just mountains of the stuff all around her. That you're probably still making her way through the previous gift that Boaz had arranged. And now Ruth comes in and just pours more and more and more onto the stacks. And then we as the readers and she hears the words, Naomi must not be left empty. This God that she had accused of emptying her out is now right before her very eyes, filling her up. And this is for Naomi, I think, a, a penny drop moment where she just starts to see and starts to understand and truly believe as she sees this outrageous, abundant, far more than she could ever need and ever have want for and ever have storage room in her pantry for gift that she has received. Not because of her careful planning or being over every detail, but simply as a gift. That as she sees it, the change here in Naomi, just in a moment like that, it's palpable. You can see her starting to believe, maybe, maybe God really will provide for me. Maybe he'll come through. Maybe I don't have to work. Maybe I don't have to stress. Maybe I don't have to come up with six different contingency plans just in case God doesn't come through for me. Maybe, just maybe, we can wait. We can rest. And I, I wonder if you too need this, similar to Naomi, a little penny drop moment this morning to just start to understand, to start to actually truly believe that for you, maybe God is going to provide for me. A moment of realization of God really is going to come through for me in every way that I need him to. Not because I've stressed about it enough, not because I've spent enough time worrying about it and being anxious about it, not because I've managed to micromanage my way through every single bit of detail, or because I've managed to work so hard that I've just covered off all the bases, but simply knowing he'll provide because I've got a God who loves me and a God who'll provide for me. And like Naomi, the way that we reach this place, this place of hang on a minute, maybe I can just wait and rest and he'll come good and he'll come through, is by seeing the gift that we have already received. What I love about this picture of Naomi in her living room is that this gift that she has just had welcomed into her home is so big that it would have filled her vision. We too need to allow the scale of all that we have received to fill our vision. How easy do you find it to forget 
all that you have received. How in just a moment, I'm getting nods because this is just the universal human condition that we have been blessed and then tomorrow it's just like, right, where's my blessing, God? That we become so fixated on all that he has not yet done in our perception, we totally forget all that he has done and all that he has given us. And because it's so universal, because it happens to each and every one of us, we need to choose to fill our vision with the gift that we have received. The mountains, the piles of grain that are around us in the living room, we need to look on that and see it for what it truly is. Because just like Naomi, we too have received outrageous, abundant provision and gift orchestrated by God and given to us through the sacrificial, costly giving of a man. When Naomi received from the man Boaz, we have received from the man Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only son, so that we shall never perish. That just like Naomi, we will never be emptied. We will never find ourselves lacking. But instead, we can expect to receive eternal life. Or as Jesus himself goes on to say in a different place, we can receive fullness of life. Now and for eternity, knowing that in Jesus, we will never be emptied that as we see him, as we fix our eyes on him, we see we are already full and we already have the fullness that we are searching for. Jesus himself said, whoever comes to me shall never hunger. He's all we need and he has given himself to us as a gift that we can feast upon and be forever satisfied. And so I'd like to suggest that if we find ourselves like the old Naomi, kind of trusting in God, and yet still finding ourselves trying to engineer situations, just trying to micromanage them to make sure, oh, just do this just in case God doesn't come through in the way that I want him to, or just in case this doesn't happen. Coming up with contingencies rather than trusting and waiting on God, or, or maybe the fearful version of Naomi, where we find ourselves actually convinced, I'm, I don't think God's going to come through for me at all. He's never going to come through for me. Then the invitation that we have before us to begin to see some of this transformation that Naomi went through, the invitation is for us to spend more time filling our vision with Jesus Christ and all that we have in him. This is why we are, and this is why we have to be as a family, quite frankly, obsessed with the gospel. Obsessed with reminding one another through our worship as we did, through the scriptures that were read out, which were just wonderful of how great God is, what he has done for us. We're not just waiting around for the next thing to happen, but all that we have received in Jesus to remind each other of how good the good news is. The gospel is not just a thing that gets us into God's favor and gets us into his purposes, and then we're sort of just waiting around, and like, God, will you please bless me? 
No, if we have received Jesus, we have already received all that we could ever need. He is our all in all. He is our sufficiency. He is the great gift, the pearl of great price. We need to fill our vision with him. And here's the thing. One hour on a Sunday every week is great, but it's not enough. It's not enough to fill our vision with him. It can go part of the way. It's an essential part. Got to come on a Sunday. But it's not enough. Let me ask you, what are your rhythms? What are your life practices to see Jesus in your life, to get hold of him, to feast on Jesus? Do you find time every morning to proclaim the gospel to yourself, to to preach to yourself, to pray out loud and say, this is what I have in Jesus. Jesus, you died and you died for me. You died for me. And I have received you and I know you. Thank you. Do you make sure that you regularly return to gospel rich parts of scripture so that you maybe you don't memorize it? but you familiarize yourself with it to the point where when you read it, it just fills your heart of, oh, this is what I've got. Or do you, when you are blasting out worship songs at the top of your lungs as you're doing the washing up, do you take a moment just to to, to click out of autopilot and the tune and the words that you're singing and to think, actually consider the words that you're singing. Uh, Yeah, this really is, it's amazing grace. And the lamb really is worthy. We have to make sure we are finding ways to fill our vision with him. And that's how we're going to finish. In just a moment, we're going to engage in this habit, this family rhythm that we have of feasting on Jesus. That we've been given by him to remind ourselves of the gift that he has given. We're going to share communion together. Because he wants to fill us again this morning. And he wants us to know he is never going to stop filling us. That's what the arc of Naomi's story up to this point and to continue in the weeks to come tells us. This is who God is. He will take the disobedient. He'll take the rebellious. He'll take those who actively choose to walk away from him. He'll take the broken. He'll take the empty, he'll take the vulnerable. He'll take the fearful, those who are lacking in faith. He'll take those who find it hard to trust and he'll fill them. And he'll fill again and again and again. And he'll fill and he'll fill because he's a gracious, loving, abundant God. In his mind, that first gift that Naomi received, the thing she's still making her way through with Ruth, it wasn't enough. He wanted to give her an extra 40 kilograms to eat because he's not satisfied in us just being able to eat. He wants us to be able to feast and feast on him. He wants us to know that he is more than enough for us. And that we'll never hunger again with him. Rob, do you want to come? Foo. As with every good story, the chapters in Ruth tend to end on cliffhangers. And this one ends by Naomi saying to Ruth, Boaz will not rest, but will settle the matter today. And that 
emphatic ending on the word today heightens the dramatic tension of the narrative. It makes us think something is about to happen. This story is heading to an end. There is a conclusion that is about to come. It almost compels you to turn the page to find out what is going to happen next. But for now, we are going to heed Naomi's words. We're going to wait. We'll sit still and we'll save that for next week. And instead, we are going to follow her example. We're going to allow our vision to be filled with him. We're going to receive him all over again. So we're going to sing a song, and then I'll be back to lead us in communion. So I'd love to invite you to stand for this bit. As we take communion, as we receive from him, be able to sit if you want to or do whatever. But as we sing this song, I want to encourage you. Let's be welcoming him even now. Let's wait on him, and let's worship him.